In a moment, David is going to come and preach to us from Ezekiel. So I'm going to read um, some of Ezekiel 18. So if you've got a Bible or a phone and you want to follow, um, then do. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4, 19 to 23, and then 29 to 32. So we're going to ju jump, out, jump about a little bit. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Verse 19, yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they've committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Verse 29. Yet the Israelites say, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offences you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Let's pray. Father, please speak to us now by your spirit, and don't leave any out. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this comes with a health warning. I'm not talking about diagnosed genetic medical conditions. I'm talking about behavior. So sour grapes. Now, this is not as in Aesop's fables, where the fox, who can't reach the grapes because they're too high, says, oh, they must be sour anyway, I don't want them. It's more like father, like son, uh, a proverb apparently 
in use at the time in Israel before the fall of Jerusalem. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have been set on edge. Everyone who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge, says the Lord. And this comes in Jeremiah 31 as well. And God says in this passage that this expression is not to be used because it's the soul who sins who shall die or live, not children for their ancestors or parents for their children. Very good news for my children and also for my grandchildren, I may say. <laughs> but this is very good news. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both spoke God's word to his people at a time when they were in great suffering, enslavement, isolation, terrible change, separation, and exile from loved ones, uh, from the land, from their homes, and it appeared even from God himself. Was God silent? Was he powerless? Did he care? Has he forsaken them? Was it something they did or didn't do? Are they the victims of the sins of their kings and ancestors? In our society, on one hand, we have this focus on the individual, her or his rights and expectations. And at the same time, we seem to think that we are governed either by nurture, our experience as children in the hands of parents and society, or by nature, somehow governed by an inexorable predetermination because of something that our forebears have done or not done. On Thursday of last week, my second son said to me, the highest status on the internet amongst all these social media things that I don't understand is apparently to be a high-level victim. And on Friday, I was listening to Radio 4, where there was a program regarding uh, talking about the legacy of the slave trade. And in Bristol University, there is apparently a department for the study of the legacy of the slave trade. And people now seem to want new investigations, new inquiries, new laws to hold other people responsible for the actions. Years ago, decades ago, perhaps centuries ago, sometimes with a view to some sort of compensation perhaps or some sort of some sort of revenge. We seem to want a new law to cope with the effects of what our ancestors have done rather than grace. Even God's prophets experienced these things. Jeremiah prayed for vengeance against those who were persecuting him and Jonah refused to go to the town of his people's enemies in order to preach God's word to them in case they repented. But this chapter, most of the people uh, of Judah are in captivity. They are enslaved with Ezekiel. Some more comfortably than others, but they're in exile. This is after uh, Jehoiakim, the second last king, has rebelled, and that's led to the enslavement of most people. And before, the very last king, Zedekiah, also rebels, and then Jerusalem is sacked and the temple is burned. In about 586 BC, the message comes in chapter 20 to 33 from a fugitive from Jerusalem saying that everything that Ezekiel has been preaching about, prophesying about for 11 years since chapter 2 has now happened. So he has been shown 
by the events that he foresaw and expressed, which have happened to be a reliable prophet of God speaking his true word. And so we should pay particular attention to what else he says about how God's people should behave. And some of us do, I think, feel a bit cut off and a bit separated, particularly in this time, from the experiences of life and the full expression of faith of God's people together. And Ezekiel reminds us that God does have a purpose to rescue and to restore, and to, we should trust God. And he has a purpose to bring his people into a closer relationship with him for his glory and for the sake of the people round about that they may see. So in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile from the land is seen as the culmination of the sin of the kings and the people, perhaps collective, over several generations. And that was all foreseen in the renewal of God's covenant in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Deuteronomy! 28 to 30, and that's been fulfilled exactly as it was described. But that includes, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, this promise, which may sound familiar, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God will change and set apart the innermost beings of those who love him. It is familiar, isn't it? Because it comes in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 as well. Is there a different God in the Old Testament? My foot, no. So where did this sour grapes proverb come from? Perhaps it's from um, Exodus 20, the second of the commandments against worshipping and making images in place of God, anything in place of the place that God should have in our lives. Described as the sin of Jeroboam, who followed other, followed by most of the other kings of Israel and Judah. And God says in that, that he will visit the sin of the fathers on the descendants to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Oddly enough, that's about the period of the exile but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. So this is a new revelation in the continuing revelation of God's love and power and purpose and rescue. And it's good news that children will not be held responsible for their parents' sin. Everyone will be judged on his own life. That's good news. It's also good news that God has arranged through Jesus Christ uh, and explains through his Holy Spirit that believers need not be put to death either for their own sin because God has arranged that that sin, the judgment, should fall on him. Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18 and Jesus in that was experiencing, amongst other things, the very judgments that the people are suffering in exile. Separation, denied access in a sense to God, and in a desperate situation, enslaved 
So it's not a change of God's mind, but a stage in the gradual revelation and understanding of his purposes. And it requires a change in man's practice. You're not to use this expression anymore, not to use this proverb, he says. So verse 21, a wicked man turns to God and does what's right, he'll live. So if we repent of our sin and seek forgiveness in faith, trusting God that our sin is atoned for and it's removed, then we are new creatures. Verse 24, righteous man turns away in previous goods, a good work will not excuse him. And all the examples in the part of the passage that um, wasn't read, they're all called abominations, not just the things that other people do. And then there are the three case studies. Uh, a righteous man turns, uh, lives righteously, he'll live. Um, not controlled or responsible for their ancestors' sin. Now, the effects of it may make it very, very much more difficult. But not controlled. And yet many of us today, do, many people today, do seem to want us to be responsible for our predecessors' misbehavior. Whether that's slavery or persecution or genocide or imperial exploitation, which we may deplore and regret, or domestic violence or bad parenting, exploitation of children, or the decision of Edward I, James I, and William III. Yet God does seem willing to bring his rescue through people who would appear to be the victims of their upbringing or circumstances. Take Jephthah, the illegitimate son of a prostitute living in Gilead. His father is described as Gilead. So it sort of suggests that dad could be anybody, any male in Gilead. So many clients did she have, not perhaps um, a very good parenting model. And yet, the tribes of Gilead, they choose Jephthah when there's an invasion of Ammonites to be the judge, to be the rescuer, and to be the one who is to reestablish faith and justice. And God fills him with his spirit for that task of deliverance. In Judges 6, Gideon's father has an Asherah shrine uh, and an altar to Baal. Two foreign gods, can't say it, sorry, specific examples of the abominations that this chapter refers to. But Gideon is chosen. He's weak, he's the youngest and all that. But he's chosen to be the rescuer, despite his parents' behavior. It follows that we can't say, I can't help it, it's not my fault, because of something done by somebody else, however horrific that may seem to be. But we do have the promise, we will not be tempted beyond what we're able, because God will with the temptation, provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13, if you think I've misquoted it. And uh, the son of a righteous man is unrighteous. Um, he'll be held responsible. I don't think that means for things that he's done as a child, because all the examples given uh, in verse 10 are actions of adults. But this is very tough, very tough for the children of parents, sorry, parents of children who, for one reason or another, have wandered off. 
So we just pray and hope and keep on trusting and praying and hoping. There are two objections from people in verse 19. One of them says, why shouldn't the son suffer for the iniquity of the parents? Now that might seem a bit strange to us today, but at the time it's pretty much common practice, self-interest and self-protection really. Nebuchadnezzar kills all the children of Zedekiah uh, because Zedekiah had rebelled, uh, rebelled. And Queen Ataliah kills all her own grandchildren and children, except one who's seven, uh, Joash or Jehoash, and he's hidden in the temple for seven years. Seven years in hiding as a child. You'd think that would make him a victim. But no, when there's a coup ousting her and making him king, he is a good king. He's not defined by that distressing experience. But there is a desire for revenge too sometimes. Um, uh, in 2 Samuel 21, the Gibeonites persuade David, even, to kill seven descendants of Saul in revenge for the way Saul behaved towards Gibeonites generations before. This desire for revenge is often dressed differently. It comes up as tit-for-tat violence, it comes as feuds, sanctions imposed, prosecutions, and we see it in, we see it in Ireland, we see it in the Balkans, the Middle East, we see it in Africa, even in 10 Downing Street. In South Africa, the peace and reconciliation process was based on repentance and forgiveness, not vengeance. And we're told to leave vengeance to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12. And there's a second objection. You say that, that it's not just. The Lord is not just. Is there a hint of that sometimes when, when somebody who's been pretty bad turns to God? Is there just a little hint sometimes in our minds of the elder brother and the prodigal, and the prodigal son? Or a last-minute deathbed conversion? Do we think, oh, it's a, it's a cheap grace, a bit easy? Or a very wicked person repents and appears to be forgiven after a disastrous life. Well, think about King Manasseh in two kings. He's the worst of Judah's kings. He makes Judah sin and the people sin. And that is what's responsible for this disastrous exile that's happened and the destruction of the temple and the city. But in 2 Chronicles 33, it describes him repenting, humbling himself before God and praying in his captivity. And God was moved and restored his kingdom and delayed the disaster. And he turned to do good things. Jesus accepted the repentant terrorist next to him on the cross. And he forgave him and promised him his presence that day. I think we must forgive. And God uh, concludes through Ezekiel. I, judge, I will judge you, the remnant of the people, every one of you, According to his ways, repent and turn from your transgressions. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. And then he goes on to say, repent and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. But we can't. We can't, but God can. 
And in chapter 36, we have this wonderful promise that's fulfilled in the Gospels and in Acts. After the fall of Zedekiah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, more good news. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Jeremiah also prophesied this. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. And the nations round about you will know that I am the Lord. A purpose in this really difficult situation, not just for the remnant of Israel, but for all the people of God and for all the world. So the experiences and the consequences of COVID that we feel now, which make for difficult situations, uh, or we face sickness, of depression, oppression even, may not be as disastrous as the exile, which happened again. But in it, we can learn about the Lord. We can learn that his ways are just, even to the extent of causing his judgment to fall upon himself in Christ for the glory of his name, and that the nations may know him. He does not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he would turn from his ways and live. Let's pray. Father, please help us to show your forgiveness, your freedom, your love, and your purpose in difficult times. In Jesus' name. Amen.